Well, if you've been with us at all during this Advent season, then you know that our theme for Advent has been the incarnation. Why does it matter? And as a matter of fact, that question has really been our question for the entire year of 2023 at First Baptist Arlington. We have been exploring various topics and asking the question, why does it matter? And right now, if you wanted to point someone uh, to just hear a brief message about Christmas and why Christmas matters, we have a website you can send people to. It's whydoesitmatter.org. And if you send someone to that website, there's just a brief message from me about Christmas. Why does Christmas matter? And we also offer them an opportunity to learn how to follow Jesus. And so our conversation began with the commencement of the Advent season, and we've been exploring the incarnation and trying to understand the richness of it, the depth of it. We know that the incarnation has a certain mystery to it that will always be there. It's always going to elude us a little bit, but we've spent this whole season trying to help us all better understand it. We've looked at the scripture. We're going to do that again today. We've been singing about it. Uh, We had a a powerful musical on December the 10th uh, as we tried to present in musical form uh, the meaning of Advent. And so uh, it has, it's been an informative and inspirational journey for us as a church family. So we'll continue our conversation today. And our text is found on the first page of John's gospel. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll, let, I'll ask you to look at it with me. And um, we're going to begin reading in verse 14, where we will learn more today about this truth, that the Word has been made flesh. And so let's look at this text, John 1, verse 14. It's our custom to... Stand if you're able and honor the Lord Jesus whenever the gospel is read. And so hear this reading from the gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, today, I want us to go back and recap just real quickly last Sunday morning. You may not have been here last Sunday morning, but we talked about the logos, and that is a Greek word, logos. It has made its way into English because we have words like logistics or logical. Uh, There are a lot of Greek words that find their way transliterated into English, either as prefixes or root meanings of words. But when we look at this word from a theological perspective, it's the word of God. And what we learned last week is he is divine in his essence. He is eternal in his existence. So when John wrote this gospel, he recognized that he was writing to a pluralistic society. There were Hebrews in his culture. He was a Hebrew. He had a certain Hebraic understanding of reality. He had a a worldview that was influenced by his Hebrew upbringing, his understanding of the scripture uh, primarily. And for the Hebrews, they used that word, logos. And for them, 
For the Hebrews, logos meant the divine wisdom and revelation of God himself. John also lived in a Greek world, and he wrote and spoke Greek. Uh, Obviously, we believe he spoke Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew in his day, but his Um, material that he's provided for us that we have in our New Testament was written in Greek. And so John wrote to a Greek audience. Well, the Greeks also used the word logos. And to them, the word logos was the divine principle. It was kind of the underlying reality of the universe. They, They pointed to it as that rational side that kind of kept the universe functioning, if you will. But John didn't just live in a Greek world. He wasn't just a Hebrew. John was a Christian. So John had further revelation as a Christian. So as a Christian... John was, had received this insight from God that that was one way to refer to the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And so for Christians, when we talk about the Word of God, it's not some impersonal force, it's a person. It's actually God's Son. So with that said, let's talk about celebrating Christmas and how we do that as Christians. Um, It is the Christian celebration that centers on the miracle of the incarnation. I love the Christmas season. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very festive. Um, My parents loved to celebrate. We, I don't know about y'all, but it seems like most families have that home where everybody gathers. That was our home. It wasn't the best home for it. Um, we only had one bathroom, and uh, I look back on it now, and I'm wondering how in the world uh, did we make it with all of my brothers and their families and my sister and her kids, but that's what we did, and every family celebration was at our house, but Christmas was a big celebration for us, so I love Christmas, and when I think about Christmas, I think about family, I think about all those traditions that we have, I think about food, um, I'm not sure why this is, but there must be some law somewhere. There's certain kinds of desserts you can only make during December. I don't know why that is, um, but they're really good, but this is the only time you can have them, so, uh, so be it. Um, but from where I sit, um, Danish wedding cookies are just as good in January, February, March, April, May. Uh, those are those little powdered cookies, if y'all don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, some of y'all know how to make them. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, but... It's just a fun season of the year. We always had Christmas parties at our house and uh, family and gifts, and it still is that way for us, decorating with lights. And, you know, Christians celebrate Christmas all over the world. Well, you think about the story of Christmas. When you you read the story, um, it's a a very simple story, actually. In fact, I I think that's one of the reasons it's so endearing, if you you think about it that way. It's... um, it's approachable, it's accessible. It's uh, here's a little couple, presumably in love and just embarking on their life journey. And they happen to live at a time when there are uh, events circling around them that are larger than they are, that impinge on their lives and force them into things that maybe they wouldn't have chosen for themselves. And then the next thing you know, they find themselves in a situation where she's going to have a baby and they've got to make a trip to a place because of a government regulation. And and so they have to leave their family and what they're familiar with. And and so they finally end up having this baby and they're vulnerable, they're dependent on other people. and, And they don't just have the baby, they 
You know, they have the baby in some type of a cave as best we can tell. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us whether there are any animals present. We don't know that. We just kind of assume that to be true because she lays the baby in a manger, which is a food trough for animals. So it just stands to reason that's probably where they were. And so there's, there's, there's just a lot of attractiveness to this story there. It's not necessarily that we all can identify with every single facet of it. It's just the principle that's involved and what, what encircles it that feels like something we can connect to. Something where we sometimes feel vulnerable ourselves. And, and so it's, it's a fascinating story. And I love the story of Christmas. And so we talk about it. We depict it, if you think about it, in art. You know, at our house, um, I don't, I'm sure some of y'all do this, but uh, we collect nativity sets. Do, do y'all do that? We, we have nativity sets from all over the world. And um, I love nativity sets. My dad was not a fan of nativity sets. Um, my daddy was very cautious. He called them figurines. <clears throat> And he just didn't believe in having them in your house. And uh, so you can only imagine once he moved in with us how it drove him crazy when we put all these figurines out and he would poke fun at me and he'd say, you're not praying to Mary every time you walk by one of these, are you? And I would say, no, these are nativity sets, daddy. Christians have them all over the world. It's okay. Um, this is one of my favorites. Uh, we bought this in Bethlehem uh, when we were there. And uh, from a man, a Palestinian Christian named Abraham. And so you might imagine this one has special um, sentiment for us this year when I think about a Palestinian Christian named Abraham living in Bethlehem right now in a little wood shop where he works. That's still where he is. But it's um, Mary and Joseph and the baby. Well, you know that um, December of 2023, this is the 800th birthday of the nativity, if y'all know that or not. Francis of Assisi was a deacon in the Catholic Church and he grew up in a wealthy family and he felt very convicted about what he saw happening in the life of the church at the time. Pope Innocent III was the, Innocent, was the Pope and of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he ruled from 1198 to 1216. Pope Innocent III is one of the most powerful popes who's ever lived. In fact, he exerted his influence in ways that influenced the papacy on into the Reformation era because Pope Innocent was convicted about his power and he preached a sermon about it and he said that when you read the book of Genesis, you'll know there are two lights. There's a greater light and a lesser light. The greater light rules by the day, the lesser light rules by the night. The greater light is the sun, the lesser light is the moon. It just reflects the greater light. And he said, I'm the Pope, I'm the, I am the greater light. And he said, any king of any country is a lesser light, like the moon. And all they're supposed to do is reflect, reflect the light of the greater light. And so basically, he established the authority of the church over all the governments of the world. And he exerted influence over Europe in a way that no Pope had prior and many would experience that kind of influence after him. Well, Francis lived during that era. And one of the things that bothered him was that he saw the opulence in the church. And he felt like it had gotten disconnected from the actual story of Christianity. He was convicted about it. And y'all may know Francis' story. So he basically just removed himself from any trapping that somehow would communicate opulence. And so he got rid of all of the clothes that he had, all the possessions that he had, and he took these vows and he wore simple clothing and he tied three knots in the rope that he wrapped around, the belt he wrapped around his robe to remind him that he had taken these vows himself. And um, 
people. Anyway, um, after Pope Innocent, right after he died, um, Francis had made a trip to the Holy Land and he was very um, impacted, particularly in Bethlehem. And those of you who have been to Bethlehem, you might can um, identify with that because when you go to those caves <clears throat> there in Bethlehem where we believe that Jesus was born, as best we can tell, it's where Jerome had lived. And while he was there, he just became convicted about the beauty of this story and the power of the truth that the word became flesh. And so he then went to Rome and he petitioned uh, the Pope in Rome at the time in um, 1223. He said, I want to hold a special mass, if I might, and I want to do it in this little town of Grecia, Italy, about 50 miles from Rome. So the Pope at the time gave him permission. And so he decided to have a chapel built in a little cave there, and he invited the people in the community to come to celebrate the Christmas Mass. And when they arrived, much to their surprise, instead of being held in the normal chapel of church, he took them to this stable. And there were animals in there, and he had crafted a little manger. He had carved a little wooden baby. And he had made sure that the animals had been in there long enough so that when you walked in, you could tell they'd been there long enough, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and what he said was, I want us to reconnect to the real story that Jesus became just like us. There was no opulence. There was no earthly power. It was a vulnerable baby born in the most unlikely place amidst all of the stench, if you will, of the real world. And so Francis of Assisi, 800 years ago, built the very first nativity set. His was live. <laughs> well, the artists in his day were inspired by him. So some of them began to paint depictions of the nativity. And then craftsmen began to do things like this. They began to carve them out of wood and church members begin to take them and they begin placing them in churches. And now nativities are literally all over the world. And this year, if you were to go to Rome, the 800th anniversary of the nativity, Pope, what's his name? Pope Francis. He's the only one ever to name himself after Francis of Assisi. Pope Francis ordered that the nativity set that's placed in St. Peter's Square, every bit of it had to come from Grecia in honor of the 800th anniversary of St. Francis of Assisi. And so it was his attempt to reconnect the church to this very ancient story. Well, Christmas is an accessible, it's an approachable story. I think that's one of the reasons it's so endearing to us. But for those of us who are Christians, here's what we know though. We know that before Christmas, when we talk about the reality of who God is and all that God has done, in reality, he's actually unapproachable. <laughs> he's inaccessible in some ways. He's majestic. He's glorious. He's the God of the universe. He's a holy and righteous God. He declares in the Old Testament, I am not like you. My ways are not your ways. I am God. Even when Moses said, would you just show me a glimpse of who you are? God said, I can't do it. It's too much for you. And so something happened at Christmas that allows us to have this intimate relationship with God heretofore unknown in the lives of human beings. Well, what was it? Well, it's what we celebrate. It's the incarnation. And so let me just talk about that and, and, and point you to what John did. This, I, I wish that I could communicate the magnificence of John 1, 1 through 18. It's, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of literature that exists today. It's the prologue to this gospel. And John paints 
an incredible portrait for us. In fact, in verse 14, one of the things he does is he, he writes with symmetry and he offers us three limitations, self-imposed, that are a part of the incarnation. And then he offers us three exaltations that accompany the incarnation. And he balances them one against the other. So let, let me show you what I mean by that. Here are the three limitations. Notice what he says, verse 14, the word, the logos, that was there in the beginning, that is God, that was God, through him everything became, if you will. Here's what John says about the word. He says, the word became. Now, the New Testament's written in Greek, not in English. And so whenever you're looking at a text like this, knowing that it's so dense theologically, you gotta slow down and pay attention. It's so easy for it just to roll off your tongue because we've memorized it and we know it but I just want to challenge you as believers today, let's just slow down with this Christmas story and pause and take in the depth of what is really communicated here. Here's what I'd say about the finiteness of this story, the miracle of the incarnation. First of all, the Word of God became a finite creature. And I'm saying that with a little bit of trembling because when you refer to the Word of God as a creature, remember the Word created everything. <laughs> And we're going to refer to the word of God as a creature that he became. Well, that's what the text says. So I've got to deal with that. I've got to embrace the limitations of the incarnation. In other words, he always was. And through whom everything became, now himself became. John uses the very same Greek word. Through whom everything else became, he became. As a matter of fact, if you look back at verse 6. And again, when you're translating something in another language, sometimes it's hard to do. If you look at verse 6, the NIV translates it like this. There was a man. Y'all see that? Well, that's the same word, became, in Ganeto in Greek. And here it is now referring to the Word of God. And so there's a reference to John the Baptist, and now there's a reference to the Word of God, and using the very same word. In other words, what John is telling us is, is that for a season... The Son of God willingly became a temporal, finite creature. Not only that, the second limitation, he says, he became flesh. I'm so glad the NIV translates it that way. It doesn't say he became body, soma. Doesn't say he became a man, anthropos. He uses a harsh word, a, 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 a raw word in Greek, sarks is the word. And it just means flesh. And so John says, if you want to know the miracle of the incarnation, the word of God became flesh. So how, how is God going to reveal himself? How is he going to make sure that we know who he is? He chose not to do it through a philosophy or a movement or an idea, an organization. He chose to do it through someone who was flesh, flesh and blood. Jesus. And then he also says he came from God. That's what this text says. That's a limitation because he's eternally been with God. And now he is going to come from God and he's going to dwell among us. And the Greek word is the same Greek word that they used to refer to the tabernacle that the Jews worshiped in before the temple. So there's so much imagery here, y'all, in this text. 
And John is trying to describe something that's indescribable. How in the world can you put limitations on the word of God? Who's going to do that? Who's going to get in that line and say how limited Jesus is? Nobody. But John does. Because he's got to help us understand the reality of the incarnation. And also the depth of it. But then John doesn't end there. Because John also points us to the exaltation. So make no mistake. The son of God was fully man. But I want to make sure you and I pause as Christians and embrace this truth. He's fully God though. That's what distinguishes us. Jesus is not just a good man. He was a good man. Jesus is not just a prophet. He was a prophet. Jesus is not just a priest. He was a priest. Jesus is God the Son. He is fully God in the flesh. He is different than any other human being who has ever lived. And no other religious leader has claimed this. Jesus didn't just claim it. He lived it. He modeled it. He demonstrated it. He showed us that he really is God in the flesh. And John says, I know that because I'm an eyewitness. And so here's the exaltation of the incarnation. Look at it with me. He says, we've seen his glory. That's an interesting turn of of, of words. He calls him the word, and he doesn't say we heard his glory. That, That would make sense. He says he's the word, and we saw his glory. So both hearing and seeing are part of this miracle. But he says the glory of God was on display in him. Well, what is the glory of God? Well, that's the visible expression of God's essence, of God's power, of God's nature, of God's majesty. And this is what John the apostle is saying to us. I want you to know, I saw it. Myself, I saw it. I saw the glory of God in him. And I recognized it. He uses that word tabernacle. Well, tabernacle is associated with the glory of God And John knows that, and John says, we saw his glory. As a matter of fact, listen to what John says in 1 John. He wrote a letter to a church. We call it 1 John. Listen to what he says in 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. Do you hear what he says? He refers to the Son as the Word, and he says, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, he says. John says we saw his glory. You know, one time John and James and Peter went on a mountain with Jesus. You remember that story? And all of a sudden, something happened to Jesus. In fact, there's not even a good word for it. The the, the Greek struggles to try to describe it. And so they came up with this word, transfigured. Any of y'all use that this morning? (laughs) So how's that uh, transfiguration going at work? No, you don't use that word. Nobody uses that word. It just wasn't a word to be anybody used. But they had to find some way to describe what happened. Well, the Bible says that James and John and Peter are hanging out with Jesus and all of a sudden his, his face just changed. His appearance just changed. And Luke says, according to what he was told, Luke says and all of a sudden his clothes were like lightning, he says. And then the next thing you know, there's Moses and Elijah. James and John and Peter, what do y'all think they're doing? The Bible says they were sleeping at first. They're sleepy. Okay, but then they woke up. Well, duh. 
And then the next thing you know, God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Now they're wide awake. You know what John says here in John 1? We saw his glory, man. I mean, I've seen a lot of people in my day. <laughs> I've seen some awesome people. I ain't ever seen anybody. I've never seen anybody like Jesus. I'm just telling you right now. You're talking about Jesus? Glory. Glory. The divine manifestation of God. That's what he saw. Wow. Can you imagine? He's had about 50 years to reflect on it before he wrote this. John spent a lot of time thinking about this. Telling the Christmas story. And then he's the son of God. That's what this text says. He's the glory of the one and only. The one and only son. That phrase one and only means unique. Incomparable. He's royal. One commentator puts it like this. His eternal wasness. His own display. <laughs> I mean how, how do you describe this? What do you say about him? The son of God. He is God in the flesh. And then he says this. He's full of grace and truth. That's another way of saying he's perfect. He's full of grace. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants Jesus' grace, don't they? I mean, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's alive in Jesus. In fact, it's, it compels Jesus to do so many things. And he was full of grace. But he was also full of truth. He was trustworthy. He was always right. And the truth of God is to be uncompromised. And, you know, Christians, we, we, we struggle with that intersection. It's hard for us. But here's our goal. Our goal is to be like Jesus. And so as we grow as Christians, our goal is to learn how to be full of both, both grace and truth. Christians, depending on their propensities, tend to migrate toward one or the other. Some Christians want all grace and no truth, Right? They want the soft Jesus, right? They want it all to be good. Everybody's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. It's gonna be okay. It just doesn't matter what you do. Jesus is gonna be there. He's gonna take care of you. He's gonna get you that parking spot. He's gonna make sure whatever needs to happen in your life, he's just there for you. He's Jesus, right? Other Christians, they like the truth. They want it. Man, they say, this is how it is. You got to believe this right here. They're hard line. Believe this. You're not really a Christian if you don't believe this. And they're very judgmental. Well, guess what? Somehow, Jesus could do both of those at the same time in absolute perfection. Praise his name. And I'm going to tell you right now, our world could use some Jesus people. Because we need grace, don't we? I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm at the head of the line. When they're handing out grace, count me in. I love it. I don't always like truth. I just don't. I'm honest. I don't. Sometimes I want, mm. could you say that a little softer? Maybe I wouldn't hear it. Could you, you know, could you somehow maybe curve around that a little bit? No, this is it right here. This is the truth. Well, somehow Jesus could do both. Well, John basically is offering the exaltation of the word of God. And that's our goal. And so what do I say about the word of God on Christmas Eve this morning? I would say it's the word of God. He's the full revelation of God. That's who he is. In fact, look at the last phrase, verse 18. He has made him known. You know, when you, you go to seminary and um, they teach you how to start interpreting the Bible, one of the core skills that you have to learn is the skill of what's called exegesis. Exegesis means to rightly understand 
and interpret the text. It means to, to truly grasp its meaning and it, and it requires work. Exegesis is a skill. It's a Greek word. It's been transliterated into English. It's fascinating to me. That's the word that's found right here in John 1.18. Jesus has exegeted God. That's what John says. He is the exegesis of God. He has made God known. He's interpreted God to us. Well, how can he do that? Well, because he knows him. Because he's God in the flesh. He's the son of God. And he is the one who makes him known to us. So, let me just say this in closing. Christmas. The incarnation. Why does it matter? Well, I, I don't think I can fully answer that question. I guess I would say it like this. Everything has changed because of it. Everything has changed. Nothing can ever be the same after Christmas. It just can't. Because what's happened here is it has just transformed our understanding of reality. It's, it's deepened our understanding of reality. It's expanded our knowledge of what's really going on in this old world. So for example, does humanity have dignity? Yes. You know why? Because God became flesh. Does God really love us? Well, yes. Because God became flesh. Does God, does God really care about us? Well, yes. Because God became flesh. Was God willing to pay for our redemption? Well, yes. Because God became flesh. Can I really know God? Oh, yes. Because God became flesh. Can, can I really know how to live my own life? Well, yes. Because God became flesh. Can, can I discover an, a, an abundant life on this earth? Yes. Because God became flesh. Can, can I actually find a path to eternal life? Yes. Because God became flesh. Can I find any hope in my circumstances right now in my life? Yes. Because God became flesh. Can I find any joy in my life right now? Well, yes. Because God became flesh. Are y'all still with me? I mean, come on, y'all. Let's say it. God became flesh. That's Christmas. God became flesh. That, that's what we're celebrating. I mean, can I join him in this grand mission? Well, yes, because God became flesh. Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Why does it matter? I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the incarnation. The word of God, who was with God, who was God, has become flesh and dwelt among us. Hallelujah. May you and I see his glory. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we bow today 
in humility and in some ways awe, I guess, of just this truth that the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We want to thank you for that. We want to thank you, Lord, for the story of Christmas. And uh, I want to thank you, Lord, for why we believe it matters. And so we, um, we want to honor you as we celebrate Christmas. And so we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom as believers to do it. May we communicate its truth, not just during the Christmas season, but throughout the year. That the birth of Jesus has truly changed everything. So this year, Lord, as we gather as families and spend these last couple of days perhaps with one another, I just pray that we'll marvel at the majesty of this profound and deep truth that John has communicated to us so well. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Christmas season offers us opportunities in so many ways, but one of them is to just think about our lives and where we are in life right now. And we just want you to know, whether you're in this room or whether you're joining us online, that uh, those of us here at our church, uh, we've made the decision that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And we believe this truth about the incarnation, so much so that we've given our lives to him. And we've embraced him as our Savior and our Lord. And we hope you've done that as well. We want you to know that you can. And we want to encourage you to do it. You can go to the Lord and tell him, Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sending your son. You can thank Jesus for dying on the cross for your sin. And you can invite him into your life. What a great Christmas present to you and to your family if you'd invite Jesus into your life. And we would love to show you exactly how to do that. In fact, if you're joining us online, if you're in this room and you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, we want to offer you a chance to do that. You can just text Jesus to the number we're going to put on the screen for you. And um, text his name. And we'll respond to you and help you better understand what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe in this room you'd like to come forward and share that desire. We'd welcome the opportunity to visit with you about it as well. Because we believe that that's when the change really occurs. That's how you really celebrate Christmas, is by embracing Jesus for who he really is.